This past Christmas, my husband and I decided to go see a movie together. We don't do that a lot, but we decided to go see the movie about Walt Disney in the making of Mary Poppins. And then um, shortly after that, I came across another story about Walt Disney. This was the story of his housekeeper. Her name was Thelma Howard. Thelma Howard uh, was hired when she was 36 years old. Uh, Walt Disney had two daughters, and the, the story was that he was having trouble finding a housekeeper that the family clicked with. The previous housekeeper did not allow the girls to come into the kitchen whenever she was cooking, or she would make them stay in their room uh, whenever the, she was cleaning. And so Thelma Howard was exactly opposite. She allowed the girls to come right into the kitchen and, and work alongside her as she was serving. She was famous for always having um, fro or, uh, raw hot dogs on hand because apparently that's what Walt Disney liked to eat. So uh, <laughs> Walt Disney would go on to call her the real Mary Poppins. Now, the story goes that every year for her birthday and for Christmas, Walt Disney would bring her into his office and he would give her a piece of paper. Now, the paper did not have a picture of Franklin or Grant on it. It had some strange words that said things like this, duly authorized officers, date of issue, number of shares. Someone suggested that she hang on to those, <laughs> and so she did. Supposedly, she tucked them away into the bottom of a drawer somewhere. Uh, years later, after she retired from working for the Disneys, it said that she bought herself a small, modest two-bedroom bungalow. After that, when her health began to fail her, she went from there into a very small, modest uh, nursing home where she shared a ward with another woman and two men. Consequently, when she died in 1994, her family and friends were shocked to learn that over the years she had accumulated 193,000 shares of Disney stock. And that at the time of her death, her portfolio was worth nearly $9.5 million. Writers would say that she died in poverty, and yet all the while she was a multi-millionaire. Now, the mismatch between the way she was living and her true financial worth begs the question, did she understand the gifts that she had been given? Did she understand the purpose? Did she understand the intent of the giver? Okay, now today, our lesson, we're going to be looking at a very similar situation because we are going to be looking at the first part of Ephesians. And when you read those first 15, 14 verses, um, it's very wordy. There's a lot of language in it that we don't necessarily use in our everyday conversation. Some of it can be kind of tricky to um, sort through. I know in, in my uh, experience, I tend to kind of gloss over it and put it off to the side, perhaps in a drawer someplace. But today, we are going to take this passage, and we're going to pull it out of the drawer, and we're going to examine it. And, and 
possibly start spending some of it. So, if you would turn with me in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 1, I'm going to suggest that you keep Ephesians chapter 1 right at your fingertips because we're going to be looking through it line at a time. Starting with verse 1, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Okay, if you were with us last week, I warned you about that phrase, in Christ. And I said, you're going to see it a lot. It's a repeated phrase. In fact, I even suggested that you go through and mark it. Okay, I, we also talked last week about the importance of keeping, of putting something in context, of understanding something in its context. If we're to understand it correctly, if we are to interpret something correctly, then we must view it in its context. And so last week, to get things rolling, we put the book of Ephesians in context. And I said there were four categories, and I said I want you to think of them as like a fence or borders. And we were going to put those borders in place. <clears throat> and then as we were looking at the book of Ephesians and trying to understand it and interpret it, it was going to be as if we were inside the fence looking at the passage from that view, from that perspective. <clears throat> okay, this morning, we're going to do something very similar. We are going to put ourselves in context. This passage lends itself beautifully to that because we're going to read through the first 14 verses and we're going to pick out seven different points that we're going to use as our borders, for lack of a better expression. <clears throat> and um, then when we're trying to understand something, trying to interpret something, we want to make sure that we have ourselves in the correct context. Okay? In your old context, you were in Adam. In your new context, you are in Christ. You are united with Christ. So what does that look like? I've got a handout for you this week. The fancy picture is compliments of my son-in-law. And um, what I'd like to do, we're going to go through the seven points, and we're going to put that around the visual. Then I also have some points that we're going to make at the bottom of the paper as well. So what do we need to know to establish our new context? Well, according to... Verse 3, we have been blessed in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies. Now, a little bit of warning. We are not going to discuss every spiritual blessing this morning. We will spend eternity doing that. Today, we're just going to scratch the surface a little bit about the ones that he mentions. Okay? Now, also, before we get started, I want us to see the phrase, in the heavenly places. We started to talk about that last week. Now, that brings us to point number one on the bottom of your paper. Point number one, there exists an unseen spiritual reality. Now, um, we talked about this last week. I am stating the obvious with you girls, that there is more to this life than meets the eye. There is an unseen world, and you and I are oblivious to most of what's going on there. 
But Paul starts out by celebrating, yes, there is a spiritual unseen reality, and you have been completely provided for in it. He says, in Christ, God has blessed us with every spiritual blessing. Every, and it's a spiritual blessing. In other words, it's a blessing befitting the spiritual realm. Okay, now why do you need to know that? Why do we need to know that? Well, because you and I get very caught up with the earthly stuff, with the stuff that we can see. We begin to let our earthly world, it begins to define us. We look at the neighbor. We look at the beautiful models. We look at the, the other people's children. We look at the various different jobs. And we begin to use that to define our reality. And here's the thing. Our true reality is that there exists a spiritual unseen world in which you have been given every spiritual advantage. What are some of those? Well, let's look at verse 4. <clears throat> he says, Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him. Okay, our first point, and this is a part of our context, so I want to put it on the visual at top. Number one, we are chosen. You can write the word chosen on there. You could also write the word elected. Either will work. <clears throat> now, I was saved in the seventh grade, and I went to a church. Um, it was not Southern Baptist that I was raised in, but very similar in doctrine. And we had a very interesting way of handling the uh, topic of election and predestination. We just didn't talk about it. <laughs> okay, we, we talked about the verse before. We talked about the verse after. You know, but when it came to election, we just kind of, it was an unseen understanding. We just weren't going to talk about it. There was a very accommodating Presbyterian church down the street, if you were wanting to talk about such things, because that's all they wanted to talk about. <laughs> but then several years ago, I got involved with precept Bible studies, and they began to teach me the importance of watching for key words and watching for repeated words. And I began to notice that I couldn't read a page out of the Bible without seeing words like chose and chosen and elected and predestined. And if I didn't see the word, I was seeing the concept or examples of it. So I knew it was something that I was going to have to take a closer look at. And quite frankly, we don't ever be, want to be the kind of class that's, that's afraid to take on things that are discussed in the Bible clearly. Okay, so... Let's talk about what the word chose means in the Greek. In the Greek, the word chose means chose. <laughs> no, there's no, no tricky meanings here, ladies. Chose in the Greek, it means to pick something out for oneself. That's what you do when you choose. It also means, and I have this on the bottom of your paper there, it means to choose one out of many. Now, Shortly after I moved here, I had a conversation with a good friend, and somehow, she was a godly woman, very sweet, and she was a godly woman, and somehow we got onto the topic of election. <clears throat> Don't know how we got there, because I had a history of avoiding the topic, but we, found, we found ourselves talking about it, and she began to get mad, mad, livid. She said, how dare 
anybody accuse my God of choosing? How dare anybody suggest that God would choose people beforehand, before ever giving them a chance to respond? She, 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 just, she, was, so, she was so worked up she had to stop talking. Now, she has, she's got a wrong picture of things. In her mind, she was seeing these uh, multitudes of people standing in line wanting to get into heaven and God coming out and saying, okay, gee, sorry, I've got this list that I've wrote up years ago and you're not on it. No, and, and th th the very thought made her angry. And rightly so, and rightly so. Listen, we can tell that something is off with the way she is viewing it because she's angry and notice how Paul responds to it. I want you to see, and this is very important at this point, when Paul talks about election, when he talks about being chosen, he is celebrating. He is exuberant. He starts to talk, and we talked about this last week, verses 3 through 14 is one long sentence. It's like the man doesn't want to stop and take time to breathe. He's celebrating this. And he very plainly says that God chose you before the foundation of the world. Now, today, we are not going to have a full-blown discussion on the topic of election. So, you know what that means? That means you don't have to do that in your small groups either. Now, what I can promise you is the topic is going to come up again. Because it's all through this book. So we'll be talking about this every week as we go. But especially when we get to chapter 2. But for today, I want us to get used to the idea that, as saints, we have been chosen before the foundation of the world. And we're going to break this down. What does it mean? Uh, okay, wait a minute. Why? We want to talk about why we have been chosen. And I want you to look at verse 4. It says that we would be holy and blameless before him. Okay, God chose. That means he chose for himself. He chose one out of many that they would be set apart. He has taking a people, and he is setting them apart for himself. They're to be holy. That's what holy means, to be set apart. And how are they going to be different and set apart? Well, look at it. What's it say? They're going to be blameless. Okay? Now, that brings me to two things that we want to remember, and this is on the bottom of your paper. Our attitude about being chosen is praise. Praise to God. Now, uh, we could put humility there, but we're going to come back to that, okay? But for now, we're going to say praise. If I were to have that conversation with that girlfriend now, it would go very differently. Because, you see, if your response to election is it's something other than praise, then that's your cue, something's off. There's something that we need to correct and we don't understand. Number four, our response to, our response to it, our response to election is be holy and blameless. Be holy and blameless. You see, when the saints begin to truly understand that they have been chosen by God before the foundation of the world, there's going to be holiness. There's going to be blamelessness among the people. Okay? Next, let's move on. Next on our circle, in our, in our circle list, our new context is we are adopted. You could also put predestined to adoption. Either one will work. God predestines us. That's predetermines. He has determined beforehand in love that we would be sons and daughters, and are in our case, daughters. 
All right, now it helps to understand a little bit about adoption. This is going to shed some light on this. In America, we look at things differently. If a couple wants to adopt, they go to an adoption agency, they go to an orphanage, and, and they pick out a baby or a child that they want to take home and raise and nurture. Um, we want to take a look at what it was like in Bible times. In the Bible times, first of all, it wasn't really practiced much in the Jewish culture. But we want to remember who is Paul first writing to. Who is his audience mostly? Gentiles, yeah. And you know what? They understood it. The Greeks and the Romans, uh, they did uh, have uh, adoption, especially if you were wealthy and influential. Now, the meaning of adoption, the Greek word means to literally place as a son. Usually, adoptees were not babies. Usually, they were grown-ups. Okay, if a couple had, an heir, had no heir, or let's say that a couple just had a son that they were very disappointed in, they could adopt somebody else and make them the heir. It could be a, a slave. It could be a, um, a, a loving nephew. You know, they could bring him in and place him as a son and give him a new legal position as son. Okay, interesting thing about adoption. I thought I found this very fascinating. Adopted, the person, um, <clears throat> when a person was adopt, adopted, it was not usually for the benefit and the protection of the one being adopted. It was intended to benefit the family as a whole. Now, doesn't that fit the book of Ephesians as we read this? So, okay. Um, now, a couple things about adoption that we want to understand, and this is on the bottom of your page. <clears throat> Adoption was about a change in status, a change in status. Your nature was not changed in adoption, but your status was. You went from being slave to family member. Okay, number six, it severed the, persons, it severed the person's old relationships and canceled old debts and obligations. Your old life was essentially erased. If you had a, a shady or questionable past, that was behind you. Your debts were paid by your new father. Okay, and number seven, it brought a new family relation with all the rights, privileges, and responsibilities. The adoptee <clears throat> assumed all the rights and responsibilities of associated with that new family. Now, in the Roman culture, uh, the father had all the power and the rights. When a baby was born, it was he that decided whether or not that child lived or died. He could disown a child. But do you know that he could not disown an adopted child? That was legal standing, and it could not be severed. Okay, now, <clears throat> how did... God predestined us for adoption. Well, we talked about this yesterday when we talked, or the pastor talked about it, when he said that we were adopted in love. And notice what it says in verse 5. <clears throat> Through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. Okay, now that tells us something. That tells us that our adoption was a loving, sovereign act of God. When um, I was little, I used to have a boxer, and on two different occasions, we had the dog bred, and, and she was allowed to have puppies. And one time, um, there was like seven in the litter, and probably when they were about a month old, people would start to come and pick out which one they wanted. You know, and they would look and say, okay, this one has pretty markings. 
so they'd want it. Or they might say this one was frisky or affectionate, or maybe they just wanted a male. You know, they had their different reasons. <clears throat> okay, listen, our adoption was nothing like that. You see, because we brought nothing to the table. We weren't aff affectionate. We weren't cute. We were none of those things. Our adoption is a sovereign act of God. Now, also I want you to notice in the NAS version, it says that we have been adopted to himself. Okay? Now, do you know that in the Islam religion, Allah is never called Father. He has given many great names, but never Father. The Prophet Muhammad and Allah, you never see them depicted, depicted as Father and Son. There's never that intimacy and that tenderness that you see with Father and Son. If you are, um, their relationship was always Master and Servant. If you are a Muslim, you have no hope of being anything other than master and, or master and slave, of being a slave, of being a servant. But that is not the case for you. Your new label, your status has been changed to precious daughter. You are all daughters here. And I don't know what um, your family life was like. Maybe it wasn't good. I don't know what kind of label you wore before. But today, it is precious daughter. You, um, it's possible that you did not have a good relationship with your father. And if that's the case, then I would strongly encourage you to read through the book of John. And I want you to watch the relationship between God the Father and God the Son. And watch the affection Watch the love, watch the tenderness between that relationship because you know what? That is yours. That is who you are now. Okay? That brings me to our next point. This is number eight on the bottom. With adoption, there was unrestricted access to the Father. Daughters have access to the Father. Okay, verse 6, moving on. To the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved. Okay, now last time I suggested that you watch for the verbs, that that would help you break this down and make it a little more manageable. <clears throat> I want you to notice in this we read that God bestowed. Now what has he bestowed? He's bestowed grace. Okay? Grace is a very key word in this uh, book of Ephesians. All right, now for now, <clears throat> I want us to add number three on our top visual about our context. We are graciously favored. We are graciously favored. Some of your versions <clears throat> are going to use the word made acceptable. You could write that in there as well. The um, <clears throat> very literal understanding of this is that God has begraced us with grace. Okay? He's lavished us with grace. Now, I want to remind you, do you remember the passage in Luke? It's the Christmas story where the angel comes to Mary and says, Greetings, favored one. 
And she's very confused about that. She's perplexed. And the angel goes on to say that she's about to become the mother of, of the Messiah, of Jesus. And she has found favor with God. Okay, do you understand that is, this is very similar to what Paul is saying to you? He's saying, believers, you have found favor with God. Now, it helps that we need to understand what um, uh, was meant when, Luke was, when uh, Mary was told this in the book of Luke. Because sometimes people read that and they think it means that Mary had been some good little girl and because of that she had uh, you know, got the attention of God and was her new little favored, or favored one. But that's not what it means. In the book of Luke, it's saying that she was a recipient of favor. She was a recipient of grace. She was on the receiving end of grace and favor. And that is exactly what Paul is telling you here. You are on the receiving end of lavish grace. Now, that's very important to understand because remember, we've just been told that we're chosen and that we're adopted. And now, we, now we're being told we have been lavishly given grace. Okay, number nine, and this is on the bottom. It's important that we understand this term grace. Grace is always undeserved. It's important that we understand that. Grace is the unexpected. It's, it's the undeserved. If you do anything to earn it, be worthy of it, then it's not grace. Okay? All right, next, we're going to move on to verse 7. Verse 7 it says, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. Okay, top of our page, we're talking about our context. Fourth one, we are redeemed. We're redeemed and forgiven. In our new context, we have been redeemed through his blood. Now, in Paul's day, it is estimated that there were approximately 60 million slaves throughout the Roman Empire. Ephesians understood slavery. Okay? The people that Paul wrote to were likely either slaves or owners or somebody that knew a slave. Okay? So redemption, they knew redemption was a precious thing because redemption is when somebody was bought out of slavery. Okay? Now, if in those days, if you were a slave, you were property, okay? And so that meant that if your owner decided to sell you, he would take you down to the marketplace, and you would be put on the auction block. Now, when you were put on the auction block, you were naked because the, buyers, the potential buyers needed to be able to see what they were getting for their money. It was humiliating. It was degrading, Okay? Now, and you also remember that the person on the auction block is there because nobody wants them. But for you to be redeemed meant that somebody came along and paid your price, paid the price to have you removed from the auction block and set free. What were you removed to? Let's look at that. The direct result of your redemption was forgiveness. Now, we want to understand something. In this passage, he says that we have been redeemed. That implies something. That implies that you were once hostage to something. That you were once in slavery to something. And if we don't first understand our slavery, we're not going to understand, going to understand our redemption. Okay? Now, what was the slavery? Well, we can see it in verse 7. 
verse 7, it says, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. There it is. We've been enslaved to trespasses and sin. Okay, that's what we've been enslaved to that. Now, what was the price of our redemption? What did it cost God? Well, look there. It says we have redemption through his blood. Our souls were redeemed with the blood of Jesus, which was shed on the cross. And because of that, our trespasses and our sins have been forgiven. In the heavenly realm, your new name tag says forgiven. Doesn't matter what you did. Doesn't matter how shameful or embarrassing your past. You have been bought off the auction block. In your old context, you were naked, you were in sin, your shame was exposed for all to see, but that is not the way it is anymore. Jesus Christ has rescued you from the auction block and lavishly covered you. Let's pick up in verse 8. In all wisdom and insight, he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his kind intention which he purposed in him with a view to an administration suitable to the, fulfillness, to the fullness excuse me, of the times. That is the summing up of all things in Christ, things in the heavens and things on the earth. In Christ, in God's wisdom, God has purposed to give you the knowledge of his will. He has purposed to reveal salvation to you. Now, we need to, oh, let's put this on our paper first. Number five, we are recipients of revelation. We are recipients of revelation. You could also put knowledge there. God has revealed and made himself known to you, believers, the mystery of his will. Now, remember, we've been talking about a spiritual realm. We've been talking about the unseen. And Paul is reminding us here, hey, the unseen world, you wouldn't know diddly squat about that if it were not for God opening your eyes and revealing it to you. Okay, so that's what we're, being, that's what we're seeing here. And also remember how we defined the word mystery last week. We said a mystery was a secret until something was revealed. Okay, now how or why does he reveal it? Look at verse 9. It says, according to his kind intention, which he purposed in him. You know what that is? That's more sovereignty. Kind sovereignty. God, in his sovereignty, has revealed himself to you. Okay, look at verse 10. <clears throat> verse 10 is kind of a mouthful. And it's talking about how God is going to bring all things together. It's the summing up of all things. Back when this was written, that term summing up, it was used to describe like whenever you were um, adding up a column full of figures and then you put the sum at the top. Okay, what we're seeing here is that there is coming a day where God is going to bring everything together, the things heavenly, the things earthly, and it's going to all add up together and come under the headship of Jesus Christ. All right, listen, right now, things do not look like they add up. You look around the world and you're thinking, oh, this isn't adding up. But there is coming a day when it will. And it's coming. We need to understand the day is coming. All of history 
is moving towards that. The day when things are all summed up under Jesus Christ. <clears throat> okay, let's look at um, verse 11. I'm going to pick up a little of 10. In him also we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to his purpose, who works all things after the counsel of his will. All right, next on our list, the circle. We are heirs. We are heirs. <clears throat> Original word would allow us to put chosen heirs. It is not enough that God chose us. We could have been slaves and servants, and that would have been gracious. It is not enough that he has adopted us and made us a part of his family, but he has adopted us and made us heirs. He's given us an inheritance. Okay, sometimes, a little note here, sometimes that's a translated that we were made the inheritance, and sometimes it's translated we are, have obtained an inheritance. Both are theologically possible, but most, um, it is most often said to be that we have obtained uh, an inheritance. So that's the one we'll go with today. What do we inherit? We inherit Jesus. We inherit every promise in the Bible that is yours. Now, there's a future aspect to your inheritance. It is given to us, past tense, but not all of it has been fully realized. Okay? Now, um, Tim Keller gives a really good example of what our attitude should be about our inheritance. He gives the example of having two men. They both have the same menial, boring job. Okay. One man is told at the end of the year he'll be given $10,000. The other man is told at the end of the year he'll be given $10 million. Which one sings at work? You know. <laughs> and and you know, this, is, this is the thing. We have an inheritance. We have a future inheritance to look forward to. Okay, number 13, verse 13, sorry. In him, you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of his glory. Okay, for your circle, the last... Uh, the last blank, number seven, we are sealed, sealed. After you believed the gospel, you were sealed <clears throat> with the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit is given to you as a seal, and it helps to understand what seals were used for in the um, New Testament to really get an understanding for this. I know when I was a kid, we used to have the little um, candles, and you would light them and drip them, and the wax would come down, then you'd take a little stamp and you'd make impressions with flowers and initials and stuff. That was back when you used, uh, you know, a thing called envelopes and you would mail things <laughs> in the olden days. Uh, anyway, similar thing back then. Number 10, basic purposes of a seal. Number, number 10 is the identification of ownership. Okay, seals were used to mark documents and various different things to display ownership. Think of the way a um, brand is used on cattle. Um, God gives us the Holy Spirit as a way of identifying that we are his. In the heavenly realms, you have been, for the sake of a word, you have been, uh, the Holy Spirit is, has been your brand. It is identifying that you belong to him. Now, it is also, not only that, but the Holy Spirit is a reminder to you that you are God's. It is a reminder to us 
that you are God's. Okay? Number 11, another purpose of a seal, authentication. Authentication. Seals authenticated. If somebody sent you a message that was from the king, you were going to look for a seal and to make sure that it was authentic. Okay? Nowadays, we do things like notarize and such things. Um, the book of Ephesians, remember, it was about the church family. And the Holy Spirit is going to identify and it's going to authenticate that you are a believer among the body. Okay? Last purpose, number 12, was security. If you remember um, the story of Jesus on Easter, the tomb was sealed. Okay, It was made secure. Sometimes they would seal an envelope or a bag of grain to, to show that it was sealed and nobody was to tamper with it. Okay, God, the God gave you the Holy Spirit as a seal of your salvation so that no one is to tamper it. No one breaks the seal of God. All right, verse 14 <clears throat> tells us that the Holy Spirit was given as a pledge or a down payment of our inheritance. Okay, it's like a deposit that would guarantee that the payment was going to be paid in full. Um, one source had a really neat example. They compared the Holy Spirit to an engagement ring. And they said it's like a spiritual engagement ring that serves as evidence that you are to betrothed to God and that you have that future inheritance to look forward to. Now, I want you to take a look at the circle, at your context. And I want to ask you, do you understand why humility is such an important virtue in Christianity? Because you look at every single thing, and, and what is the correct response to any of it but complete humility? Now, why else do you need to know this? Why else do you need to know this? Because this is who you are. This is who you are. You are not an orphan. You are not an unloved orphan just set aside. You are not the unwanted girl standing on the auction block for everybody to stare at and critique and judge. You are not a woman standing on shaking ground with no hope or no certainties in life. This is who you are. If you are in Christ, you have been blessed with every spiritual blessing in him in the heavenly places. You see, you're going to walk out that door and life is going to hit you. You're going to be tempted. You'll be accused by the enemy. You'll face great distractions and, and, and great difficulties. And you're going to need to know who you are. You're going to need to have your life in context so that you have the right view and that you have the right perspective. I would um, suggest that you memorize these. Memorize them. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father God, we praise you that you have not left us as orphans. 
We praise you that you have made us heirs, that you have adopted us as precious daughters. My prayer is that these women begin to just get a taste, just a taste of what you have done for them. And that we might live holy and blameless lives as a result of it. We ask all of this in the name of our precious Redeemer, the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen.